we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me, Father in heaven. I pray that as we allow our ears to hear this word read, that deep within us we know that it's your voice speaking to us. That because we've heard this word read, we can never say, God has never spoken to me. Because every time we open this book, every time we read it, every time we listen to it, it is the very word, the very voice of God. So I pray that you would enable us to attend to this word. Holy Spirit, please come. Convince us that it is indeed the very word of God. Convince us that it really is true. Transform us by it. You say your word is life. Thus, I pray that it be life to us. In Jesus' name, amen. First Thessalonians, please, and chapter 1. First Thessalonians, chapter 1. Hear the word of God. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake and you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I want to take up really just verses 9 and 10 this morning, really from the middle of verse 9 through 10, although we won't take up much of verse 10. So I guess half of verse 9. But, 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 but we have there, I think, uh, a description really, a threefold description of the genuine Christian life, a threefold description of the genuine Christian life. You remember, as we began this a couple of weeks ago now, as we began this, mentioned the fact that what we find, especially in this chapter, really through both these letters to the Thessalonians, but, but really in this chapter, what we find is, 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 is Paul laying out a relationship between the gospel, good news about Jesus, the gospel 
and the church. And what we find is that the gospel precedes church. The gospel creates church. The gospel then shapes church. That it shapes the lives of believers who are assembled, who are gathered, who are joined, who are in union with each other. So the gospel creates the church. The gospel shapes the church the way that Paul has already described the gospel shaping the church uh, is that he has seen their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. And so it shapes the church by producing in these people faith in Jesus that causes them to work then uh, to achieve God's favor, but because they have it, then they obey to, to, to love. And this love is reflected in their labor, that is their sacrifice for one another. And of course, then their hope in Jesus that produces steadfastness. And even in the midst of affliction, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of the culture being against them and, and perhaps friends, family, neighbors, everyone against them in, in a certain way, that that, that still they hang on because they have this hope. And so they're able to be steadfast. They're able to persevere in the midst of that. So, so Paul said, so this is how the church is shaped by the gospel faith, love, hope. And then the church spreads the gospel because from this church in Thessalonica, the, the gospel sounded forth, or as we said, echoed. It, it went from them all over the place. Everywhere Paul would go, he would meet people who had heard of the the faith of these people in Thessalonica and it preceded him. He said, it makes my job easier. I don't even have to be here because they've already heard of, of your faith and, and, and thus, and, and so he lays that out. Now here, as he sort of sums up this section, he uses three verbs that, that I think, others think, uh, lay out for us a description of the, of the genuine Christian life. All three of these verbs being descriptive in that sense of of who we are, how we live. And, and one verb is turn. Another verb is serve. Another verb is wait. Turn, to serve, to wait. Describes the genuine Christian life. One who has turned, one who serves, and one who waits. Now this turning is to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for the coming of his son. So, so that's this sense of it. All three true. So as we read this, we ask the question personally, obviously, is this true for me? Is, is this really described my life? Am I one who has turned from idols? Am I one who serves the living and true God? Am I one waiting for the return of Jesus? Is that really true for me? If not, what does that mean? About me, If so, what does that mean about me? How does this inform this fact that, that this church, the believers are those who turn, serve, wait? How, how does that inform the way that I speak of Christ? How does that inform the way that I speak of Christ in my own heart? How does that inform the way that I speak of Christ to my spouse, to my friends, to my kids? Uh, how, how, does, how does that inform the way we do VBS? How does that inform the way that we lay out for our kids this truth uh, of the gospel, when the gospel is being spread by the church, given I've been shaped in this particular way as one who's turned, who serves, who waits, how does this then inform the way that I speak of Christ, speak of the gospel? So that's, that's where we're, we're headed. This idea of turning, uh, 
the, the technical sense, the technical word that we use here is, is, is conversion, that they were converted, uh, that they turned, they were heading in one direction, and now because the gospel had come to them, now they're heading in a completely new, different di- direction. You know, when we speak of our salvation, when we speak of, of being reconciled to God, when the Bible speaks of that, uh, it speaks of it from, from two different, really, perspectives or vantage points, if you will. One from God's perspective, that is how God describes it. The second from our, our perspective, the way that we would describe it. And, and when, when we're thinking about our salvation, our being reconciled to God, being joined to him, forgiven, all of that, we, we think about the life that we have from God, uh, and we think of it from his perspective, his vantage point. The Bible uses words like election, like regeneration, like calling. When, when God lays this out, he, he, from his perspective, he saying, let me tell you what I've done so that you will be saved. And let, let me give you it from my perspective. And, and Paul's already mentioned this, this first word, election, in verse 4. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he that is God has chosen you. And there it is. He's, he's chosen you. This sense of election. That, that, and when we speak of election, it, it reflects God's sovereignty. It reflects God's grace to us. Because we know we don't deserve it. We understand, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the necessity of it. That God must act. Because we're in sin. And this sin enslaves us. And that enslavement means that I'm, I'm stuck there. I can't get out. And, and where I'm stuck is in my sin, that is in my self-centeredness, that is in my pride, that is in my, in my, my own achievement and all of that, that, that I can do it myself, that I really don't need God, that I'm autonomous from him, that he's a threat to me, that, that I'm, I, I don't want anything to do with him. That, that sense of, of, of the true and living God. And so what overcomes, what releases us from that slavery, you see? God says, I do. I'm the one who does that. I'm sovereign over your own heart. I can move in you like that. And it's unconditional. It's not conditioned upon you. It's conditioned only upon God's grace and goodness. That he does that. We know necessity because enslavement, it means that we're in darkness. Our minds are futile. How could we ever? We're dead, the scripture says. So all of that. So we understand the necessity of it. We understand it's a reflection of God's sovereignty. We understand it's unconditional from our perspective, conditioned only upon his sovereign grace. It's not constrained by anything in us. God is sovereign over his own election of us. All of that. Then there's this word regeneration, that in order for us, Really to believe, since we're dead, he gives us life. And we can't conceive ourselves. Physically, we know, none of us conceived ourselves. Someone else conceived us. The whole image of, of being born, of this whole notion of being born from the, by the Spirit, being born again, means that someone else outside of us gives life because we're dead. We can't do that ourselves. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the, 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 the great image of Lazarus being raised from the dead is a, as, 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 as a great image of, of this regeneration, this being born anew, this given life from God. God speaks our name and, and, and boom, as he did 
was Lazarus. Lazarus came forth. He was dead. And now he lives. Same for us. This sense of, of, of being born by the Spirit. You remember when Jesus was speaking to the teacher named Nicodemus, John chapter 3, that, that Jesus said, it's impossible for you to perceive, to understand, to enter into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. You've got to be born from above. You've got to be born by the Spirit. You've got to be born into it. And that's only something God can do. Only something that the Holy Spirit can do. We're dead. He brings life. Calling. Another way that God describes uh, our salvation from his perspective. He calls us. And this call, when attended by the word and spirit, is irresistible to us. And, and we receive it. And, and, and we believe that sense. All of that from God's perspective. When Paul is writing here that we turn, we serve, that we wait. He's speaking of our salvation in a sense as we understand, as we see it, as, as, as we observe it, as we participate really in it at that point, the, the, the sense that, that we turn, yes, it's in response to, but we must turn. Jesus said there's a broad road that leads to destruction. There's a narrow road that leads to life. And this turning, if you can picture it using Jesus' image, is that we're on this broad road and it's leading to destruction, you see, to hell really. Leading to destruction. And he says, now, for us to have life, we must turn. <laughs> you must get on a whole other road, a narrow one that leads to life, you see. And, and so he says, that's what happens here. From God's perspective, those he's chosen, those to whom he gives new life, those he calls, make the turn. But we make the turn. The turn is obvious. The turn is, is essential. The turn is seen. And Paul says, I've seen it. You've turned. To God. That's the way it, it always had, uh, had been as, as this gospel goes forth in, uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, what, is, what is noticed mostly is that there is this, this, this turning. For instance, in Acts in chapter 9, we read this. It says, now as Peter... Went here and there among them all. He came also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. And they turned to the Lord. They were going down the wrong road. They saw this. And we know from God's perspective what had taken place for all those who could turn this whole election thing, this whole regeneration thing, this whole calling thing. But what we could see, what we observe, what, what, what's happening in us, we're turning. You see, they were turning. They turned to the Lord. They said, no longer this, but that. That expression turned to the Lord all through the book of Acts as the gospel comes to people, this turning. And it's a turning to God. It's a believing. It's a faith in Him. And it's a turning to God, of course, in Jesus, believing in Jesus. You see, if you simply turn to God in and of yourself, you'll be destroyed. Because what basis do you have upon which you can stand before God? And so when they turned to God, it was a turning in Jesus. It was a, it was a turning in Him, saying, I believe in Him. I come in Him. I come in Jesus' name 
all hail, we sang as we started our service this morning, the power of Jesus' name, you see. It's so powerful, this name of Jesus, that when we claim it, when we receive it, when we grab hold of it, when it is the name that's used to describe our identity, that name is so powerful that when you knock on the gates of heaven, the doors open. When we come in the name of Jesus, and we are received, not condemned, you see, because he, the Lord of life and death, has taken upon himself our sin and died. And when we take that name, what we're saying is, I believe I'm a sinner. I believe he's the Savior. I believe his death satisfies for my sin. I believe in him. Then you see, we enter into the very presence of God. So it's a turning to God. But notice this. It's a turning to God from idols. Now you go, oh, of course, for them in this ancient city, Thessalonica, there were idols all over the place. They were in the shadow of Mount Olympus, so they had the Olympian gods and all of that. We know culture, that, that, that these gods in their minds, very tangible, had names, sacrifices made to them for various needs. And so, of course, they could no longer do that. They turned from that. But you see, on the one hand, that's very significant for them to turn from that. You see, in the ancient world, Thessalonica, there were multiple gods. There was never a problem, at least a long-term one, to add a god to the list. People were very comfortable covering as many bases as possible. If you could find out another god that could be helpful here, let's have it. But you see, what made Christianity unique and also dangerous was that Christianity is in the business of subtracting, not adding gods. Jesus was very clear on that. Of course, we know all of his statements, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This exclusiveness of Jesus as God to be followed. He was very honest with his disciple. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever will find his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus wasn't saying there's something wrong with loving father or mother or child. But what he was saying is they must never be ultimate. They must never take my place. You must never arrange your life around them. You must always arrange your life around me. You say, shouldn't I love my wife? Well, of course. But how and why? 
Who, who defines how it is that a husband loves his wife? Who, who directs how it is that how a husband loves his wife? And not just how he wants to love her, but how God says, this is how you love your wife. And so we glorify him. We follow him in loving our wives. How, how does a wife love a husband? Not how she thinks she ought to love her husband, but how God says you're to love your husband. And so you see, when you go to God, you say, God, how is it that I'm to love my husband? And you see, you're honoring him. In love. We're to love our children, but they're not to be our idols. They're not to dictate our lives. We're not to love them the way we think we ought to love them. We're to go to God and say, God, how do I love my children? And then you see, we love them the way that he directs us to love them. And then they're not running our lives. <laughs> he is. We're not loving them more than we're loving him. Does that make sense to you? That's what it means to love him more. Jesus so this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself? See, we're following after him. He says, this is something exclusive. He goes on to say this. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, let, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I'll follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said, no, no, no. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now Jesus is using exaggerated language there. Tapas, get it? He's saying, Follow me. Arrange your whole life around me. What you should do is first ask me, God, is it a good thing that I go, Jesus, is it a good thing that I go back and bury my father? Well, just presume it. Just think you know best. And then you'll follow me. No, 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 no. Arrange everything, even these most intimate, significant, emotional details of your life arrange them through and around me come to me for how you to live your life you see everything else is idolatry ezekiel referred to the idols of the heart you see god's very exclusive and the first commandment don't have any other gods Period. Don't arrange your life around anyone other than me, God says. Come to me. See, the prerogative of God, as we've said so many times, is that he's the one, as creator, as God, he's the one who defines what life is. We don't. He's the one who directs life. We don't. He's the one in whom we're to be delighted. We're to find our joy, our satisfaction, our contentment, our happiness in him. The way that he defines life. The way that he directs life. And so you see the way that we, we, we honor him as God 
is that we ask him questions like, who am I? We ask him questions like, what does it mean to be a man? We ask him questions like, what does it mean to be a woman? Regardless of how I may feel, regardless of how I may define myself or want to, that to be. God, who am I? What is a man? What is a woman? We ask him, what is marriage? What does that really mean? You see, what, what is a father? What is a mother? What is a friend? We ask him, God, why? What is work? How, how does that fit in? How do you understand work? And where does that fit into all of this? God, money, possessions, where does that fit into all of this? How do you understand possessions? How am I then to understand my possessions and my wealth and my work and my family and my sexuality and my job? How am I to understand all of that? God, I, I submit to you, your God I'm not. Now, idolatry happens, you see, when we allow someone else, something else, ourselves, Satan, another person, a philosophy of life, whatever that thing, whatever that happens to be. We, idolatry happens when we put that in the place of God. People put their passions in the place of God and allow their passions to define what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. We put our passions in front of God or our wisdom as God and we say, this is what marriage is. This is what work is. This is what money is to do. This 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 is what my possessions are for. And you see, then we think we're taking control of our lives and we're not. See, the sin in the Garden of Eden was in a very real sense idolatry. Adam and Eve substituted the word of the the serpent, the word of Satan, in place of the word of God. Adam and Eve substituted their own desire, if you will, for control to be the ones who could be like God, to, to be the ones who would determine what's good and evil, they're the ones, they, they put themselves in the very place of God. It's idolatry, you see. The way the apostle Paul defines this in Romans 1 is explicit. Verse 21, he says, for although they, he's not speaking of Adam and Eve here particularly, but sinners in general, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. You see, they didn't honor him as God. How do we honor God as God? (laughs) The way that we honor God as God is we go to him and submit to him. We say, God, you're God, I'm not. God, you're God, nothing else is. What is life? How should I live? Who am I? What's this all about? Did not honor God as God, nor give thanks to him. You see, even if they did go to God and ask him those questions, they didn't like the answers God gave. They didn't give him thanks for how he defined life to be, how he was directing their life. And so they said, well, you're not helping me, God. We saw that overall in ancient Israel all the time. In ancient Israel, the the, the leaders, the kings says, God, we don't feel protected by you. So we're going to make an alliance with these other countries. They can help us. We're going to trust them and not you. We're going to submit to them and not you. We do that all the time. We don't like 
how God has defined our lives. We don't like how God is directing our lives. And we say, I'm going to go find someone, something that will do it the way I want it done. That's idolatry. Jeremiah says, it's just a scarecrow you've put out there. It really can't help you. Farmers are sunk every time a blind bird happens upon their field. Because they realize this scarecrow can't do anything. And all the other birds go, cool. And so you see, at the very moment when you need the scarecrow the most, he fails you. And Adam and Eve didn't receive life at all. They weren't given more control by their sin, but rather less. In fact, the earth took dominion over them. That they would actually return then to the earth as dust, dead. These idols kill us. We think they serve us, but we're really serving them. Isaiah mockingly Puts it like this in Isaiah, oh, variously, let me read, let me, chapter 44 in Isaiah. Isaiah puts it like this, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do, no, do not profit. Their witnesses uh, neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that it's profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall put shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth, let them be terrified that they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool, works it over the coals. He he fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arms. He becomes hungry. His strength fails. He drinks no water. He's faint. That is, this, this idol will zap everything out of you. The carpenter stretches a line, marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak tree and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for the man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire, bakes bread. He makes a god and worships it. He he makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Half of it he he eats meat. He, He roasts. It and is satisfied, he warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm, I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. And Isaiah says, God says, How silly. Later on he goes on and says, You build these gods, but they can't see. You have to see for them. You build these gods and they can't move, you have to move them. You build these gods and they can't speak. You have to speak for them. You build these gods and they can't hear anything that you say. In other words, these gods are simply a figment of your imagination. They're simply a product of your creation. When you think this idol can save you, it can't save you any more than you can save you because it's just from you. You made it. Now, for a while, you feel like, oh, I'm in control of it because it's mine. But sooner or later, it will eat your lunch. It will take everything from you because it can give nothing. 
So you see, when someone comes to faith, there is a recognition of that. And there's a turning from all of that. And you realize, that can't give me life. That can't save me. And so there's a turning. And there has to be a turning. We call it conversion. To turning to God from idols. To serve the living and true God. Here, Paul is, 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 is making a great contrast here between these idols and God. He's saying, this is the living and true God. That is the, the only one. There isn't another. So get rid of all the ones you have. Turn from them. Living, they're all dead, mute, lifeless, helpless. This God is alive. And he's true. They're all false. They're all scarecrows. They're all from your imagination. They can't help you. They're false. They're dead. Now, serve this living and true God. Now, the question is, quickly, how do we serve this God? What's it mean to serve him? Now, the difficulty here is, although it's also a blessing, is that when we say we serve him, we must understand that he needs nothing. We're not propping him up because he needs propped up. We're not seeing for him because he needs our eyes. We're not hearing for him because he needs our ears. We're not speaking for him because he needs our mouths. We're not working for him because he needs our hands. He's God and he's alive. And so as Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And, 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 and as Paul is with the, with the people in Athens, he says, he says, he says, this God is not served with human hands. So, so get that part of it out of your mind. That he's, we serve him because in some sense he's needy or needs us. But the contrast here is with these idols. How, do you, how does one serve an idol? How do you serve, for instance, money? Well, you go to money and you trust its promises. And you say, I believe that you can satisfy me, that you can give me life. And how do you serve it? Well, you arrange your life around it. You arrange your life in such a way that you receive, accumulate, have money. And that's the identity and identity of your life. When we serve the true and living God, we go to God and we say, I believe your promises. You can give me life. And then we say, oh, by the way, what is life? Oh, by the way, who am I? Oh, By the way, what does it mean to be a man? Oh, by the way, what does it mean to be a woman? Oh, by the way, how how should I order the affairs of my life? What does that really mean? What is my work? What are these possessions? And we go to him and we submit ourselves to him to receive his wisdom, to receive his strength, to receive his definitions, to receive his directions. And we arrange then our lives around him. And we wait. You see, all this talk about serving gives us the impression 
there's something to be done and there is. But we realize, too, that even in the midst of all the activity and all the serving, there is a waiting, there is a hoping, there is a looking forward to. And that waiting, that hoping, that looking forward to is the return of Jesus. As we look around the world, we realize that it isn't in that sense all done, that this isn't glory, this isn't the new earth surrounded by the new heavens, this is still a world in it is sin. And so we're waiting. We're waiting for this one who is his son who has been risen from the dead to come from heaven because he's the one who will deliver us from the wrath to come. That'll be next week. But you see this idolatry, this sin, this offense against God, this injustice against him means that he exercises wrath against it. Now that isn't an irrational response. That's a rational response. It isn't an uncontrolled response. It's a controlled response. But it's God righteously acting against that which is sin, that which is offensive to him, that which is evil, that which is wrong, that which is idolatry. And so regardless of what we look around and see, we know a day is going to come when Jesus will return and we'll see the complete deliverance. We know that to be true because on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body which is, which is given for you. And then he took the cup that was there. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Indeed, as often as you eat of this bread, the apostle said, and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, the gospel is the proclaiming of the Lord's death. That's the good news that the king of glory has come and lived and died and When he died, he died for the sins of sinners and rose for life, you see, of all who believe. We hold on to that. But we know there is still a final consummation, a completion of that to come, and it will come when he returns. And so we wait for that, knowing that because of what he's done, we will be delivered from the wrath that is to come. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us. That we would hear this good news, this gospel, and say, yes. To know that these Idols are no thing, nothing. That you and you alone are the 
living and true God. So I pray that we are well aware of our turning to you from idols. That we may arrange our lives completely around you. And even as we make that profession, these elements speak truth to us that we've failed even in that, even when we desire that we've failed and thus we know that we are forgiven in Jesus and we're grateful. And so even though we sin still, we have confidence. Having heard the gospel, having turned, having served and serving, now waiting that a day will come and we'll see the final deliverance. So Father, I pray that you would take this bread and this juice and separate it out in our own minds and hearts in such a way that we know we're in the very presence of Jesus. I pray that as we come to this table, it is evidence of our turning to you, God, in faith in Jesus, turning from any gods of our making. That we may serve the living and true God even as we await with great expectation the coming of our Lord Jesus. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you.